chapter 21 tonight, Acts 21. I have been looking forward to getting to this chapter. I, I think personally this is the most interesting chapter so far in the book of Acts. Whether or not this will be the most interesting sermon I've preached uh, from the book of Acts, I don't know. I, you, know you, never, you never really know, but I definitely uh, have been most intrigued by this chapter and really enjoyed studying it and have been really anxious to get to it so I could preach it. Uh, for a long time now, so let's jump right into it because I got a lot we need to cover. And again, hopefully, y'all have been paying attention to all the sermons in the book of Acts and remembering everything. Otherwise, you might struggle with some points that I'm going to make. Uh, but but either way, uh, I'm going to make some pretty you know strong. I'm going to give some pretty strong opinions on what I believe about some of these passages in here tonight. And it's one of these areas too where it's like I don't have 110 percent proof. But I think, again, uh, what you're going to see is going to make a whole lot of sense and uh, maybe clear some things up and will definitely help you uh, avoid being deceived by Hebrew roots people and dispensationalists with some of the weird things that they will try to pull from a chapter like this. And it's real easy to take chapters like this, isolate it, teach weird stuff. It's real easy to get away with that. But if, you, if we're familiar, if we're aware of all the details, the history and everything, people aren't, they're not going to be able to put one over on you. So it's important we study these things. So verse 1 says, And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Kuz, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And remember, from the previous uh, two weeks ago when we did chapter 20, we saw Paul kind of doing a farewell tour as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And so now he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it says, And finding a ship sailing over into Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, let's take note of the fact that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, who was actually with Paul, he points out that these guys said this. They told Paul through the Spirit with a capital S, don't go to Jerusalem. You know what that means? These guys were prophesying to him. These guys were speaking by the Spirit of God, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And so this is only uh, roughly 12 or 13 years, too, before the destruction of Jerusalem. This is around 58 A.D. And so God, I believe, has already determined he's going to destroy this city. But the Apostle Paul... He, did. he had a love for the people of Israel. He had a love for the city of Jerusalem. All the Jews did. In Daniel chapter 9, when, God, uh, when Daniel understood Jeremiah's prophecy about the desolations of Jerusalem, Daniel, in the whole chapter, everybody ignores the first 24 verses, Daniel is praying that God will not do to Jerusalem what he said he's going to do. And then God sends the angel Gabriel to tell Daniel, it's determined. It's going to happen. I heard your prayer. Listen, you're, you're a special man. God heard your prayer, but he sent me to let you know this is going to happen. These things are determined. So, Paul, you know, nobody from that era, none of the Jews, even saved ones, liked this idea. And they, did, they cared very much about the city. We saw in the beginning of the book of Acts how not only were they preaching personal repentance for salvation, but they were clearly preaching national repentance for Israel, so they would not come under the judgment of God for killing Jesus. 
And we under, and while we understand that many, many, many people got saved and went to heaven as a result, that the nation never repented. The nation as a whole did not repent and they were destroyed. So verse 5 says, And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. And, I, and while Paul, what he was about to do, while it was not the best idea, while it clearly was not what the Holy Spirit was leading him to do, Notice how these other disciples, these other followers of Christ, when Paul goes against what they tell him by the Spirit of God, notice they didn't throw him in the trash can. They didn't hate on him. And listen, this is a big problem in the Baptist world. Whenever you do something that a Baptist preacher does not think is the will of God, even if it's something that's not technically a sin. For example, is it a sin to go to Jerusalem to preach to the people there? No, that is not a sin. Was it God's will? I do not believe it was God's will. But you know, just because Paul is determined to do this thing that's not the best idea, this was not a reason for them to just break fellowship with Paul, hate on Paul. No, you know what they did? They still loved him. And it's like, you know what? I don't like that you're going to do this. We told you what God told us. But at the end of the day, we're with you. We hope for the best. And they prayed together. And then Paul went on his way and left. I could probably preach a sermon about that right there not going to do it and if i was going to preach it i'd probably need to preach it at a preacher's conference because pastors are the worst when it comes to this i don't believe this is god's will for your life yeah but it's not a sin i'm going to do it anyway you're out of god's will i hate you you know and then they burn bridges and make it so people can never get anything right and that's not right we don't want to be that way but verse seven and when we had finished our course from tyre we came to patanale and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day and the next day uh, we that were of Paul's company de- uh, departed and came into Caesarea. And notice it said, we that were of Paul's company. This is Luke because he was there with him. Keep that in mind. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. So this Philip here, and I'm going to try to get through this stuff quick. There's so much I want to cover in here. But Philip was one of the original deacons. When we see them choosing the first seven deacons, Philip was one of them. This is the same Philip who won the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord way back in Acts chapter 8. Now think about this. What we're reading about here happened over 20 years later. So this is over 20 years has passed since he led that Ethiopian eunuch. One of the first examples that we see. And again, where we see God beginning to reveal that he's going to go to the Gentiles. Because the Ethiopian eunuch was probably, again, he was probably a converted Jew. But at, but at the same time, we were seeing God kind of branch out and uh, Philip kind of helped start some of that. And now he's known as Philip the Evangelist. And I preached a whole sermon one time on Philip the Evangelist. I'm not going to repeat a lot of stuff I covered there. But notice in verse 9, it says, And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Okay, now, what exactly does this mean? Okay, because obviously as Baptists, we don't believe in men pre- women preachers. So, you know, a lot of times the women preacher crowd, I mean, Philip had daughters that prophesied. And so what does our side typically say? Well, this just means they were soul winners. Well, actually, it doesn't just mean that, okay? But understand, okay, prophesying, okay, is not necessarily a bad thing. 
Here's why women are to keep silent in the church. The Bible is very clear. We're not going to go over all the references because they are not to usurp authority over a man. That is why we do not have women leadership in church. That's why we do not let women get up and preach from the pulpit in church because women are not to usurp authority over a man. But prophesying, okay? Prophesying is not always necessarily soul winning because we see in the beginning of this chapter when they stop at the one place, they find the disciples and they, speaking through the Spirit of God, are prophesying to Paul, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. We have Philip the Evangelist and it makes note of his daughters which did prophesy. Now, it doesn't tell us what they prophesied in this story. But if you want to think that, no, it's, that just means they were soul winners, okay? But then why does it specify that they, were, they had daughters which did prophesy? Because a lot of women, we know, went soul winning back then. But prophesying is something that was very special. And look what it in Acts 2.17 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And this is an amazing thing. This is a miraculous thing. And right here is an example of God doing this with Philip's daughters. Women just going out and telling people the gospel, that's not a miraculous thing. That's just obedience. That's not, that's, not, that's not a miracle. That's just obedience to God. So we don't just get to make a prophet or prophesying whatever we need it to be from situation to situation. Okay? But, and let's look at the next verse to show Luke isn't just saying they're soul winners when he said this. Because in verse 10, it says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, why did it specify he's a, prophesis, a, a prophet? Is Luke just saying he's a soul winner? No, he's showing this guy was, pro, was a prophet. He spoke by the Spirit of God. And so look what it says in verse 11. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So we see that this whole story here, what we're seeing is all these people prophesying to Paul, telling him by the Spirit of God, don't go to Jerusalem. And I believe that includes Philip's daughters. They were, and, and understand too, when it comes to prophesying, a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, like when we're preaching, we're prophesying. Well, not exactly. It's, it's not it's not completely the same thing because again, when I get up and I preach to you, I am not giving you my words by the spirit of God, but at the same time, I am prophesying in the sense that I am giving you the words spoken by men and written by men who got a word from the spirit of God that were inspired. My words are not inspired, but the words from the scriptures that I'm proclaiming are inspired, aren't they? So these people, too, in the Bible, when God is coming upon them and they are prophesying and they are speaking by the Spirit of God, the words they are saying are inspired. So there's a, di there's a, there's a difference there. And God doesn't just do this with everybody and anybody. It was special people that he did it with. And we see it done a lot back in this day before the scriptures are written. You say, well, why aren't we seeing it all the time now? Well, you know, I won't go as far as to tell you that, you know, God will never speak to anybody or God will never have anybody prophesy. But I will say this, we really shouldn't need it that much when we've got this. 
Like, why do you want to hear somebody prophesy and say something so bad? You know, are you not getting enough from this? But understand, back in the day, when scriptures were hard to come by, when the scriptures aren't all even written yet, you better believe God was going to need some people to speak some things and reveal some things from the Old Testament that were not previously understood. And when those people would do that, they were prophesying. So understand, Philip's daughters who are prophesying, who are speaking things by the Spirit of God, they're not usurping authority over, over a man. That they're not taking a leadership role in the church, which is what the sin is. It's not sound waves coming from a woman's mouth. Otherwise, a woman uh, would not be allowed to sing in church. A woman would not be allowed to say anything in church. A woman would technically, you're not even allowed to whisper to your kids to tell them to stop talking because that's not you technically being silent. But you say, why do we let women do that in the church? Because it's fine. They're not usurping authority over a man. And you don't just get to isolate that line and then, you know, make it mean something that the writer never intended. So understand the, when you look at the context of everything here, you see they're not just, it's not just saying they're soul winners. These are people who are prophesying and they're warning Paul that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to have problems. So God is giving Paul plenty of warnings. And so it doesn't explicitly tell us Philip's daughters prophesied telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But I think it's probably, you know, they likely that that's what they prophesied to him, what they said to him. And verse 12 says, and when we heard these things, both we... And they of that place, okay, who are the they, the people he's been talking about, besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So everyone is begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And they're doing this by the Spirit of God. So keep all that in mind. Now, let me explain a, very, a couple of very important things that we, you know, again, we could preach sermons on a lot of these things, but I'm just mainly trying to focus on this chapter tonight. So let me just st make a few statements that I believe are true. Uh, if you have more questions about that, I, you know, probably worth preaching some messages on these things. But again, going and preaching in Jerusalem is not a sin or a transgression of the law. You all understand that? Just like if I, when I wanted to start a church, okay, I obviously wanted to go where God wanted me to go. But at the same time, it's sometimes hard to know exactly what God's will is. Does he want me to go to Rock Falls or does he want me to go somewhere else? And the truth is, while the Spirit of God might want me to go to one city, I might really want to go to another city. Okay? Now, if I go to that other city that's not God's first choice, I'm not necessarily in sin. Okay? Some of these things aren't always real clear. God doesn't always spell it out for us. And the truth is, even if you know, what I do was not God's first choice, it doesn't mean God's just now going to write me off and never bless me in what I do. Okay? Some of you, you know, you've moved here. You chose to go to this church. And you might have thought about going other places. And, you know, you might wonder sometimes, well, if it was God's will, I'd go somewhere else. You know, I picked the wrong one. Now God can't bless me. God can still bless you. You know, there are areas we're allowed to do kind of what we want to do. And while God might lead us another way, if, again, if as long as it's something that's not sinful, if we, if we go ahead with what we want to do, God still can bless us and still can use us. Okay? Same thing, too, with marriage. You know, when you're trying to pick a spouse, you know, you might be thinking, you know, God might think girl A is going to be best for you, but you might be thinking, I, I, you're a little more carnal. You want girl B because she's prettier. 
You know, and if God's like mad, you know, God's not just going to get mad at you because you chose girl B because she was prettier and then just curse your marriage. You know, after you marry her, he wants you to stay married to her. And, you know, you'll probably have some battles that you wouldn't have had with girl A, but God can still use that marriage. God's still going to let you have kids. God still can let you live a long, happy life together. And a lot of people have this attitude, if I don't pick the right thing, the rest of my life's just cursed. That's a dumb idea. And uh, that's, that is not the case. God can continue using you. And so going to Jerusalem, I do not believe, was God's will for Paul's ministry. But God will often allow us to have our way in areas where we are not sinning. And he may even still bless us as long as we're not in a, just being rebellious. So again, if God's just doing one thing after another, trying to show you this is not my will, and you just keep ignoring him, he might get mad at you and bring the hammer down on you. But it's, that's not always the case with everything. And we do see throughout the Bible, God often would go against his own will on behalf of some great man of God. But that doesn't mean he'll do it for everybody. For example, God did that with Moses, didn't he? God, it was God's will. God said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill these people. And Moses told God to repent, and God repented. What's going on? God cares about us. God wants to give us things that we want. God wants to give us what we ask. And I've preached whole messages on this before where I believe we can change God's mind on things and change God's will for our life. In the story of Hannah, God had closed up her womb. But Hannah went to God and begged God to open up her womb. And you know what? God did because she asked. And we see, we see Stephen in the book of Acts. I believe God was, Jesus got up because he was going to kill the Jews there. And he said, lay not the sin of their charge. And God didn't do anything to him then. So, again, when we see these stories, if I, if I get up here and I say, I don't believe Paul was supposed to go to Jerusalem, I think there's plenty of evidence for that. But that somebody could come along and say, but yeah, but look at all that still got done. Look at all, you know, and we're going to see stories later. We're going to see good things that still happen with Paul. We're going to see people who got saved you know, in, in the long term, as a result of this, what's going on? Because God's still using them. You know, just because Paul maybe did something that wasn't the best decision doesn't mean God's going to put him on a shelf. Paul definitely is going to go through some difficulties, but God still used Paul. And God didn't just start hating on him. And so just understand, um, God would often do that. But it doesn't mean he will for everyone. I'm not just going to go to the story and say, we well, you know, God changed his mind for Paul. He'll do it for me too. He might not. He doesn't have to. But in everybody we see him doing that within the Bible, I mean, it's usually pretty impressive individuals. I don't want, I'm not going to put myself in a Paul and Moses category. Okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. But uh, you never know. I mean, David too. David got God to stop one of the, that, that plague when that angel was smiting all the people. David got God to stop that. So uh, keep all those things in mind. You know, that's another sermon for another day. But I believe that's an example of what we see going on here. So in verse 13, it says, Then Paul answered, after all these people are telling him, Don't go. What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. And again, they didn't write Paul off. They did not agree with what Paul was doing. And they were right. They were speaking by the Spirit of God. 
But again, this was not a sin what Paul was trying to do. And you know what they did? They just ceased and they said, the will of the Lord be done. They prayed for Paul. They wished for the best. And we should always do the same thing. When people make decisions we don't necessarily agree with, even if it was probably a bad decision, you know what we should do? We should wish them the best. We should pray for them. We should bless them. We don't need, we don't need to curse them and hate on them. That is really bad, and that happens a lot amongst Christians. And they, they didn't do it. They, that's not how they were in this story. And let me tell you, they had much clearer revelation that they were right than we often do. And, and I haven't seen anybody do this here. I haven't seen anybody. But, you know, we've had, you know, we have even recently had people that have moved away from here. I hope you all aren't sending them hate mail. I hope you all aren't, you know, sending them nasty texts and things like that. You know, we shouldn't be that way. So I don't think it was God's will. I prayed about it and the Lord made it really clear. It was not, it was not his will for them to move. Well, you know what? It wasn't a sin. And you know what? Even if you're right, not saying anybody's right, it's okay for you to wish them the best. It's okay for you to send them off with blessings. And I don't want to say that because I don't want to, you know, giving you all the green light to move away or anything like that, you know. But at the same time, when that kind of thing happens, we ought to be like these people. This is a good example right here. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. All right. it's, I think it's hard for us. I know it is for me, but I, I think we do a pretty good job of that. But anyway, verse 15. And after those days, uh, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. And there went with us also of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, I want you to start watching very close to what's going on here. This is important. Okay? So they come to Jerusalem. The brethren receive us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. Now, James, the Bible, I, we talked about this before. He was the first bishop of Jerusalem, according to history. The Bible doesn't flat out tell us that. But according to history, we see that he was the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem, which would have been a very large church with thousands of people, all Jews. Okay, keep, and we've talked about that before. And so the brethren receive him. James is there and all the elders were present. So, again, this is a large church. I don't know how many elders they would have had. There was probably a lot. And it says, so the whole church doesn't know Paul's in town, but James, the bishop, and all the elders, the leadership, they're all aware Paul is in town, and he gets a pleasant, warm reception. Paul gets a meeting with the dignitaries of the church in Jerusalem. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And remember, Paul was commissioned by the church in Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles. And so, in an official sense, we see here the brethren in Jerusalem, they were for Paul. They were excited about what was going on with the Gentiles. Hey, this is good news. I'm glad to hear about all those Gentiles getting saved. I'm glad to hear about all those churches getting started in all these other places. This is good. This is wonderful. These people are on their way to heaven. But you know what? We're going to see these people, this church had some concerns. We're going to see this church had some real problems. We talked about this before. I forgot what chapter it was. But this church, I'm telling you right now, it, it was not a good church. I believe this church in Jerusalem was getting deep into apostasy. And I'm going to show you this too. But um, inter so interesting, according to you know, Bible chronologies, which are not inspired, 
But again, I think there's definitely some credibility to them, and they're at least close. Paul wrote the book of Romans probably the same year that this took place. More than likely, I think it's very safe to say, Paul wrote the book of Romans shortly before coming to Jerusalem. Now, Paul tells us some things about the people in Jerusalem, too, that obviously he had heard about the church in Jerusalem that he clearly was right on in what he said in Romans because we're going to see it displayed here in this chapter. But remember, Paul was in Corinth in chapters 18 and 19 and it mentioned him being in Chantria in Acts 18. And if, you, and if you go to Romans 16, verse 27, at the very end of the book, it might be in some of your Bibles, it says, written to the Romans from Corinthus and sent by Phoebe, the servant of the church at Chantria. So Paul, again, probably wrote the book of Romans shortly before going to Jerusalem. So let me point out a few things I believe we can conclude from Paul's writings about Israel in Romans. And when you compare what he said in Romans to what we see here in chapter 21, I think it makes some confusing things pretty clear. And again, I can't be 110% on a lot of these things, but I'm just going to show you why I believe what I believe tonight about this. So first off, I believe that the church in Jerusalem had a lot of unsaved people in it. A lot. And I believe uh, Paul's going to back me up on that. I also believe that the saved people in the church had become very useless as Christians. I, I think it was like a lot of IFB churches today. There's a lot of unsaved people in IFB churches today. And there's a lot of IFB churches that at one time were thriving, soul-winning churches, getting a lot of people saved, but leaven got in. And there's anybody that was saved in that church is still saved, but they're not getting new people saved. And we've talked a lot about that, where they've quit bearing fruit. Okay? They're still saved, but they are not bearing fruit. And God might come along and trim that branch. And get rid of that branch. And so I believe this church in Jerusalem was about to lose its candlestick if it had not already lost its candlestick. And I believe Paul was also well aware of the condition of this church before he went there. I think Paul, Paul knew it was going to be a rough road. But Paul was so anxious to preach the gospel to the people in Jerusalem. I think he still was holding out some hope there might be some kind of repentance nationally speaking. And you and I know it didn't happen. But it wasn't going to stop Paul from trying. And so in verse 20, so this is after Paul's told them about all the works God's done among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So they're about to, uh, while they're saying a lot of good things here, hey, brother... Paul, this is great. We're so glad to hear what's going on over there. And hey, you know, look at how many thousands we have here that believe. And they're zealous of the law. And, they're about, and you know, and Paul, we've got some concerns about you. And they're about to express those concerns. But notice how it specifically mentions that all these believers that we have are zealous of the law. Now, these are their words. This is the church at Jerusalem's testimony about themselves. This is not the writer saying this about him. This is their testimony about themselves. Now, I believe what we see here in Romans chapter 10 could very well be applied directly to the church at Jerusalem. But at the same time, too, it, it also could be more of a summary of Israel 
as a whole. But again, if even if it was, what we're going to see, if for everything in Romans 10 is about Israel nationally, then you know what we can conclude about the church in Jerusalem? It was as worldly as you can get. They had blended in with the lost Jews. Just like a lot of Christian churches today are blending in with the lost world. And that's not good. That's not how we're supposed to be. And look what he said. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So remember they said, we're all zealous of the law. Paul here talking about Israel saying, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Where was the zeal? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So what are a bunch of saved Jews doing bragging about their zeal in the law? There's something wrong with that, isn't there? It sounds a little conflicting with what Paul was teaching. And again, Paul's testimony about Israel is basically the church's testimony about themselves. Saying that we're zealous of the law. But Paul said it's not according to knowledge. Yeah, there's a zeal there for sure. This church, they're all excited. They love the law, but it's not in the right way. They're looking at, they're starting to think their righteousness is about their performance of the law rather than just submitting to the righteousness of Christ. So um, you could say, though it says they believed, therefore they were saved, but this is their testimony about themselves. Okay? Paul very well may have had a completely different opinion about these people in Jerusalem. And so people, because again, people can think they're saved and they're believers, but if they're trusting in their performance of the law, they're not saved. So uh, that's very easy to prove. So the truth is that the church in Jerusalem said it was so similar to the unsaved Jews that it's hard to tell specifically who Paul's talking about. Because even if Paul is speaking exclusively about Israel nationally, what Paul says about them nationally is exactly what we see with the church. In Jerusalem right here. So again, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between Christians in the world, isn't it? You really can't tell because they're so similar. That's not a good thing. So verse 21 says, and they, and so they're about to give their concerns for Paul because it's like, all right, all these believers here, we got a bunch of believers. We're getting the Jews saved, Paul. And they're zealous of the law. And it says, and they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Now turn over to Romans chapter 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. And I believe, I believe Paul was aware of the rumors that were going on about him. So it says in verse 1, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way chiefly, because unto them are committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And this is referring to a teaching that... The worse you are, the more it commends the righteousness of God. 
So like if I get saved and I just keep living wicked, well, that just shows that, you know, the, the grace of God even more. That's stupid. Right? That, and, that, that, and he's saying, because Paul's saying, if that's the case, then why does God take vengeance out because of sin? So that doesn't make sense. That's just a stupid teaching. And it says, in verse 6, God, um, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory. So again, if I am glorifying God through lying, okay, why am I yet, why am I also judged as a sinner? That doesn't make any sense. And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that all are under sin. So the Apostle Paul, he clearly taught that, listen, the law is good. We teach that the law is good. But we also teach the law does not save you. We make a big deal about that. The law does not save you. We do not teach people to go against the law, but we do try to teach people who are depending on their performance of the law to repent of that and to put their faith and trust in Christ. And so because Paul was teaching a salvation without works and it had nothing to do with your performance of the law, specifically telling people you don't have to be circumcised to keep the law, then you know what? People were saying, Paul's basically teaching that same thing. Paul's teaching like the trendies. The less is, you know, who cares? God doesn't care about any of it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about grace. Just keep living wicked. Paul said, that's a lie. That is not what's going on. And so it, it, it appears, and it's, it's very clear from this chapter here, these elders in Jerusalem are coming to Paul and saying, you know, we're hearing some things about you, Paul, that you're teaching Jews to forsake the law of Moses. But was Paul teaching Jews to forsake the law of Moses? No, but he was teaching it doesn't save you. And, and that's why in verse nine, he says, we've already proved both Jew and Gentile that all are under sin. That's what Romans one was about. Those Gentiles, they're bad. I mean, they are bad, bad, bad. All the stuff they're doing. But Romans two. The Jews, yeah, they're not doing as much stuff as that the Gentiles are doing, but guess what? They're sinful too. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God, which is what he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. So, right, so we see what's going on here where people are kind of taking something Paul's teaching, but they're jumping to a false conclusion with it, basically lying about him. And so it says in verse 22, what is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. So these, elder, these elders were clearly concerned about Paul's presence. It would seem that the congregation's running the church instead of the leadership running the church here. And so it says, do therefore this that we say unto thee. So, Paul, because people think that you're teaching Jews to forsake the law, and they didn't have a problem with telling Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law. The Jews, and we've showed this before, the Jews were fine with telling the Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law as long as you stay away from things strangled and blood and fornication. But all those other things, Jews, you, know, you don't have to teach the Gentiles to keep the feast. You don't have to keep, teach Gentiles to do the circumcision, but you better teach the Jews is basically what's going on. That was not right. That is, that's, that, they, this church in Jerusalem still had a superior attitude. You know what they were? They were really the first Hebrew roots crowd in reality. And so, verse 28, or 23, 
So they're telling Paul, we've got to convince the multitude, you're, you're on our side with the law. So he says, do therefore this, that we say unto thee, we have four men which have a vow on them, take them and purify thyself with them, and be at charge with them, that they may shave their heads, and, and, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So the elders, they want Paul to follow this Jewish custom so that the multitude, clearly full of Judaizers, would be pacified. I think this request that they did was terrible. And you know what? I personally think, if I may insert my opinion, Paul should have been like, yeah, not getting a haircut. Yeah, I'm not doing that. That's what I personally think he should have done. But again, Paul... What we're going to see, all he wants is a chance to preach to these people. That's all he wants. Paul wants a chance to preach to them, and I think he's just hoping the Spirit of God will do something among them. And so if he's got to follow this custom again, it's not a sin. It's not a sin if he does this thing. And again, give none offense to the Jew, the Gentile, the Church of God. I don't want to offend the Jews. I don't want to get the wrong idea. All right, I'll go along with this foolishness. If it'll get me a chance to preach to these people, it'll give me a chance to get put before the multitude. But um, it says, and as touching the Gentiles, which believe, verse 25, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. Okay, Paul, it's okay for you to do this ritual because you're a Jew. But the Gentiles, it's not okay. Saving only they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangling, from fornication. They're still putting a difference between the Jew and Gentile. Not supposed to do that. Okay, and this was, this was wrong. They were still married to the temple and the customs associated with it. And I believe they did great compromise to be able to continue hanging around the temple because we saw years before there was a great deal of persecution going on, but now they're growing. There's thousands of them, but the Jews don't seem to be bothered by them anymore. You know why? Because they've compromised. Hey, there's a way to get the Jews to leave us alone, ladies and gentlemen. We could compromise. There's a way we could get YouTube to leave us alone and quit giving us strikes. We could compromise. There's always a way, you know, to become more liked in the community. You can compromise. I, I'm telling you, that's what this church did. So verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And again, I don't think he should have done this. And we're going to see this didn't work. This didn't accomplish anything. Verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Now, it's very important that we understand the setting. We've got to remind ourselves of this because we've covered this in earlier chapters. We have to cover it again. These Jews of Asia, I don't believe, are the church. In Jerusalem, I don't believe these are the saved Jews that are going after him. But remember, the Christian church in Jerusalem, it was made up all of Jews. And they were still considered Jews even by the unbelieving Jews. They were just seen as another sect, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Christian church, though, is still participating in ceremonial observances that they should not have been. I don't believe they should have been doing this. These Christians also had clearly compromised with unbelieving Jews to the point where they're not being persecuted anymore. 
It wasn't because they won the Jews over. That's clearly not the case. So the Jews that we are about to see attack Paul, they're not necessarily the Christian Jews. These are Jews from Asia who've come to Jerusalem for Pentecost who recognized Paul from when he was preaching in Asia. This is the guy that was stirring everything up. This was the guy that we were persecuting. So when they see him in Jerusalem in the temple, they freak out. They freak out big time. And look what it says, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people of the law in this place and further brought Greeks also into the temple and have polluted the holy place. So these are the ones spreading the rumor and the church in Jerusalem, they were such big compromises, they believed it. It's kind of like you, we've got these heathen out there. We've got these worldly people out there who they say lies about me. They say lies about our church. And then you have scared, cowardly Christians that sometimes will advance those things and go along with those things and act like we're a hate group and act like we're anti-Semitic. Like, hey, you heard that from the, from the Jews. You heard that from the Anti-Defamation League. And you're going to repeat that junk? You know why they do that? Because they're worldly and they're scared. They're afraid to preach the truth. And that's why they believe the things that they hear. Hey, you all just keep going after Pastor Tommy. Keep going after Liberty Baptist Church. As long as they're going after them, maybe they'll leave us alone. That's just kind of the attitude. And so this church at Jerusalem, listen, you know what they should have done? When they heard those things, Paul was saying, you know, we know Paul. We sent Paul out. Maybe we ought to check the scriptures and make sure we're getting this right. But, you know, they didn't do that. Just compromise. They compromise, compromise. And, and Jerusalem is a mess. And it says in verse 29... Because So they, they accused him of bringing a Greek into the temple. Now, that didn't happen. Okay? The church in Jerusalem wouldn't have even let him bring a Greek into the temple. Okay? They just assumed that. They just said that. And it says why in verse 29. For they had seen before him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought him in the temple. They're like that, Paul, he's with Gentiles all the time. He's probably got one with him now. If Paul's in the temple, surely one of his Gentile buddies are with him in the temple. He's, and they're polluting. They're polluting. And you know what? According to the Old Testament law, you know, bringing these Gentiles in is polluting the sanctuary. But again, God's broke down the middle wall of partition. Why would a church... So the, clearly, if the church in Jerusalem is still able to participate in the things of the temple, you know what that tells me? They weren't letting Gentiles in. There's no way they were including Gentiles... Otherwise, there would have been an uproar with them. But the uproar doesn't happen until Paul, the one guy who's not compromising, comes along. And, and he doesn't even bring a, didn't even bring a Gentile in. They just assumed he did. And so, the unbelieving Jews were offended at the thought of a Gentile, making it crystal clear the church had not been including Gentiles. If the church in Jerusalem was supposed to be involved in the things of the temple then Gentiles should have been allowed in too. But guess what? The veil had been rent. God was done with the temple. And at this point, they should have gotten a hint. At this point, they should have fully understood it. But they, that was it. this is why God had to destroy that temple. It had to go. The temple had to go. It was just a boat anchor around their neck and it was keeping them from salvation. Verse 30, and all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating 
of Paul. And this is a story we use too to prove that the Temple Mount of today is not the Temple Mount. That was the Roman fortress. And if you go to today where the Roman fortress is, if you go down to a lower hill, you know what you have? You have Mount Zion, which is where the temple was. And so those soldiers, when they heard the temple and the city in that's in an uproar, the soldiers, they ran down to the temple. The temple was not the high point. The fortress was the high point. And they ran down to it to calm things down. Because again, the Romans are in charge, but they allowed the Jews to do their thing. They allowed them their holy place. And as long as there's not an uprising, as long as they're keeping the peace, they're going to leave them alone. But when they've got a riot going on, an uproar, now the Jews or the Romans, they get involved. And so it says, um, verse or 32, who immediately took soldiers' turns, ran down to them, and when they had saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. So Paul, you know, he's basically getting the snot beat out of them as a result of going and preaching to the Jews. The Jews did not receive him at all, and the church was no help. Where was the church backing them up? You know, where are they? You know, oh, I didn't realize he brought a Greek in. Oh, you know, we're not for that. We're, we're, you know, we're not like that. You know, we, you know, we're, you know I, where, where are they in defending him? We don't see them backing him up at all. And so it says in verse 33, and the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came up upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. So they are, they're just all riled up and nobody even knows what he did. They're all saying these different things. Because the accusation, the thing that got everybody all riled up is that he brought a, a Greek in, but nobody can find any Greeks. And so, the, but the soldiers, they come and they're just all accusing him. You know, just like, just like they do with us today, they just accuse us of everything, hoping something sticks. Hopefully something will stick. Uh, I mean, you know, that Pastor Tommy, he must be bad. I mean, look at all the stuff that's out there on the internet about him. Surely he must be bad, otherwise all these people wouldn't be saying stuff. No, that's just what the Jews do. And, and, but nobody can actually give any proof that he's done anything wrong. And, but yet at the same time, we've got this huge uprising and literally nothing has been done. So the soldiers are taking him away because they're just trying to calm the people down. Well, this is a guy that's getting everybody riled up. Let's get rid of him. But what are they doing? Following after him. Away with him. Away with him. Jerusalem is wicked, folks. And again, where's the church? There were thousands of them. Where, where are they? And so, you know, it said it's hard to imagine how much compromise had to have taken place in the church of Jerusalem where things were okay between them. When we see how they reacted to Paul, so how were they getting along with the church in Jerusalem? It, it, I'm telling you, compromise. Apostasy is what was going on. And so verse 37, And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers? So I don't know if that people were accusing Paul of that or what, but I mean, I think these Romans thought, this, this guy's got to be somebody really bad, you know, based on the reaction of the people. But no, he hasn't done anything. And Paul, but Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. So here he is, 
Again, he's going through all this stuff, dealing with all this foolishness, just so he can get an audience with the people. He's not, he hasn't even gotten to the time where he can. He's doing all this Jewish stuff to pacify the Jews, but then he gets spotted by the Jews in Asia. Huge uproar. People, they act like animals. They're getting them taken away by the Romans. But then what does he do? He doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't make his... He's like, just please let me talk to them. Please let me say something to them. Why? Because that's, that's why he went. He went there to preach to them. He cared about them that much. And it says when he had given him license... Because again, there was more law and order amongst the Romans than there were with the Jews. They were the law and order people. The Jews were always starting all this trouble. And then the Romans would come and they'd have to calm them down and straighten them out. They were still wicked... But they at least had some law and order, which is why they became so powerful. And, uh, that's, and so that's kind of another lesson for another day. So now that the, the Romans are giving him license to speak and allowing him, while they're all there, to stand on the steps and say something, now the Jews kind of, you know, they, they kind of have to listen to a certain extent. They don't want to. They don't want to let him speak. You know, they basically, again... This is what this when the you know, unfortunately the Jews didn't have control of all the social media and all the TV stations the Romans did at this time, so they weren't able to just get them canceled. And even though they tried with all that they had, and then unfortunately for them the Romans like well you know what we're going to let them say something, we're going we're going to give them something to say. And so they did they had to listen. So it says Paul stood on the stairs and he beckoned with the hand of the people, and when there was made a great silence. And this is not silence out of respect, but probably more for fear of the Romans. He spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, and that's where this chapter ends. And so we're going to have to pick that up next week. Where we're going to see what he preached to them. But I, I show you all this. It's so important. This cha- while this chapter ends here, you know, and, and so, so much that, you know, as far as what we can see, we don't see any recorded salvations as a result of what Paul preaches here in Jerusalem. Ultimately, what this leads to is the Apostle Paul going and testifying before Rome, which I believe is what God wanted. Okay, now if, if I'm a certain, certain opinion in here again, too. I believe God ultimately, and what his original plan was, was for Paul to go to Rome so he could speak before the emperor and for the leaders at Rome, to speak before the world power at that time. But Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. And so the Apostle Paul, God allowed Paul to do what he wanted to do. He gave him his chance to preach in Jerusalem. But then what we're going to see for the next several chapters, Paul's just kind of being a leaden around, standing before this guy, standing before that guy. But you know what he eventually got to do? He eventually got to stand before Rome and preach at Rome, which is what God wanted. And so again, God sometimes will allow us to do what we want to do. That's not necessarily according to his will. Now, understand, if you just want to force your way, that's the hard way. I prefer to do things the easy way. But God's going to get you where he wants to get you. Remember Jonah? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. God wanted him to go to Nineveh. Eventually, Jonah went to Nineveh, didn't he? And the job that God wanted to accomplish, God accomplished. So, I think it's best to just be super submissive to God and do what he says. But, I, but God still used Paul. God still accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with Paul, even though I believe technically he was not doing the best thing right here. And it 
it, it ended pretty bad for them. And so, I believe while most understood that Jerusalem was finished, Paul still had hope there could be national repentance. And I believe that's what Romans 11 was all about, too. When he, in Romans chapter 11, when he's talking about the branches being broken off, and he's telling them in Rome, be careful lest God spare not thee. Again, God's using this church in Rome. He's not using, he's not using the one in Jerusalem anymore. They're pretty much worthless at this point. And he's telling them, that can happen with you too. God can break you off as a branch. And when Paul said God's able to graft them back in, I think it's because Paul understood God could start using Jerusalem again. And God, but, and that's what Paul wanted. Paul made that very clear in Romans 9 and 11. I want God to use them again. But you know what? And God could have. I mean, listen, God could have saved anybody if they would have believed. God could have saved Israel. God could have used Israel again. But did he? No. Now, people will take that verse, and because it says God can graft them back in, they say God's going to. It's coming, it's coming back. It's all about, you know, 1948. No, no, that's not the case at all. But I believe when you understand what was going on, when Paul wrote that, it was when he had a plan. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm giving it one more shot. I'm giving it one more shot. And you know what? God could have grafted them back in. But let me ask you, did he? Did they repent when Paul went back there? No. And what did God do 12 years later? Fulfilled what he told Daniel. He was going to fulfill with them. And Jerusalem got wiped out. The temple was gone. So, well, there's going to be a temple again in the future. I know. It's called Antichrist. It's called rebellion is what it's called. And I believe that eventually our world is going to unite in their rebellion against Jesus Christ. They are going to unite in their, re their rejection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it will manifest itself in the world uniting around the rebuilding of the temple that God said couldn't cleanse sin. And they're going to go back to those ways. And it will eventually result in them making war with us. And we will see a repeat of what happened back then, but on a global scale. And we refer to that time as the tribulation. And I believe that I believe that is something that is still to come. So uh, Jerusalem, definitely a mess. A church in apostasy, not fully there. I believe James was saved. According to history, James, I believe he, he was uh, eventually, you know, they got to a point he couldn't compromise anymore. And you know what the Jews did to him, according to history? They threw him from the pinnacle of the temple. And, he, and I think he was still alive when he was down there, if I remember right. And they did something to him to kill him after that. I can't remember uh, what the story was exactly. It's not in the Bible, but he eventually died a martyr's death in Jerusalem. And then all the ones that were actually saved, according to history, they got out of Jerusalem before it was destroyed. So anyway, I hope that was a, a help and helps you understand Acts 21 a little bit better. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. I thank you so much for this interesting chapter in your word. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to take the time to uh, understand these passages, not to, to, in a way where people can't just isolate certain verses and teach weird doctrines from them, uh, but we'll get, just get a, a grasp of your word as a whole. And uh, Lord, we just thank you so much that you finished the things of the temple and that we don't have to worry about those things anymore. We can just 
uh, rejoice in you and knowing that you finished all the work for our salvation and we can look forward to heaven and and uh, we can have hope knowing, Lord, anybody we talk to, if they'll put their faith in you, they can be saved just like we are. In your name we pray. Amen.